The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Today we talk with Eric Liu, co-founder and CEO of Citizen University and director of the Aspen Institute's Citizenship and American Identity Program. Eric is a leader in local and national citizen reform movements. He served as a White House speechwriter for President Bill Clinton and later as the president's deputy domestic policy advisor. Eric talks with us about his new book, Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, Responsibility, and Democracy. He also talks about his efforts to build a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship across the country. Whenever you head into like an election time or holiday time, there are these really complex relationship dynamics and conversations that happen around particular issues or political values. And I think it would be really helpful to talk to him about how he thinks about navigating those and that he's done some some recent um you know talks about that. We could ask Eric. It's a good question. We're going to ask Eric about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it does. It's like I keep hearing him in his TED talk and that talk about values which not only do we agree about that we have that in our curricula. Like on a personal behavioral level, it's important to identify your values so that you can act so that your behavior can be in alignment with those things. That is actually a strategy for Good decision making. For good decision making Mm -hmm. and other things. Because we're always looking at things like we look at values through a certain lens Mm -hmm. of more of an on an individual basis, like how can individuals Mm -hmm. then align their decision making and their behaviors to those values to be in integrity with themselves, you know, or their family. But like what does that really look like on like a more civic scale? Because let's say everybody's like, okay, I have my values. I feel really comfortable. I feel like I've identified them. And like you were saying, so one of my values, I don't hurt people. But somebody comes to you and says, but you are, Andrea. You're hurting people by the way you vote. And like, then what do you do with that? Right. (laughs) I think that they're not only just hard conversations and that I think a lot of people don't have enough information to have Well, there's that too. And it's not because people are stupid. No. It's It's because it's it's complicated. complicated. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's it's kind of a tangled mm-hmm. <laughs> knot to unwind. So it's good that we're going to oh. talk to <laughs> Maybe he'll Eric, it. please he'll have the answers. <laughs> Hi, Eric. It's Mia. Hey, Mia. How are you? Hi, I'm good. I'm so happy to be talking to you. This is Andrea. Good to talk to you again. Hey, Andrea. Good to talk to you again. For me, I'm really excited for our listeners to be introduced to Eric because you know, we have a lot of educators in our audience. And, you know, Eric, I don't even know if that's your typical audience, but for anybody that doesn't know you already that, you know, are in our listener group. And then what I also want is for them to go out and like, listen to your TED Talks and, you know, read your books and really get inspired. So that's kind of my goal. Great. Now, Eric, you and I have known each other for a number of years. I have been a part of the civic collaboratory group that you convene, and that is a very interesting group of people from around the country where we come together in like a mutual aid society. And although we all work in different fields, we all in some ways have work that is either directly or adjacent to civic engagement, citizenship, or democracy. And, you know, with our work in social emotional learning, we always feel like that is a great underpinning 
um, to these greater concepts. We'd love to just kind of get started hearing a little bit more about you, Eric. What brought you to this work? Well, I think there's a couple of ways to answer that. I think the deep, longer version of that is to recognize that, you know, I come to everything I do as the child of immigrants. My parents were born in China. They went to Taiwan during the Civil War there and came to the United States in the late 1950s and built a life here. And so all I did was have the dumb luck to be born in the United States. And I think, you know, my parents were never particularly politically minded or, you know, outside of the Chinese community that civically engaged. And yet growing up, there was just this unspoken vibe in the air that because I had had this dumb luck, this opportunity to be born here, I had a certain reciprocal obligation to actually be useful and to contribute to the society and to make all of the hard work and sacrifices that they'd uh, committed over the many years in some sense worth it. And so I think that's a foundation layer for me of just feeling like I have an obligation to be useful. And I think, you know, beyond that, I've built a career in public life in one way or another, worked in government and politics for many years, worked in media, have been an author of many different books that relate to race, identity, democracy, patriotism, citizenship, so forth, a, a set of kind of interconnected subjects. And what I think has been the through line through all of this work is, again, just the sense that as I've had the opportunity to do things like work in the Clinton White House uh, or to use the world of books to share ideas and to change narratives about what it means to belong uh, in our society, I've over time built up a fair amount of capital, social capital, intellectual capital, relationship capital, institutional capital. And what really brought me specifically to the work of Citizen University was realizing at a certain point that, and I think this is true for anybody when they reflect upon the little pile of capital that they've accumulated in their life as a member of a community, you face this very simple binary choice, which is, should I hoard that capital or should I circulate it? And uh, you know, I think all of us, <laughs> both in this conversation and, and anyone listening, is a circulator by nature, by definition. But once I kind of crystallized that instinct to circulate is when you know, I really wanted to start uh, doing work that was very much oriented toward teaching art of powerful citizenship and really trying to cultivate the norms and the values and the habits and the practices of being a pro-social contributor to community. We can go into it more, but that's really the, the kind of ethical origins of my work at Citizen University. There's a more practical short version of it in terms of literally what was the stuff that I was doing right before Citizen University, but I'll get to that in a minute. I think citizenship, especially in today's climate, people may be thinking about that in a certain way. <laughs> so what do you mean when you say citizenship and then and maybe a follow-on civic engagement? Yeah. Well, let me just back up a step. Citizen University, which is the, the organization that I co-founded with my wife, Janae Kane, and now run as CEO... Our work is all about trying to foster a culture of powerful citizenship in the United States and to spread a belief that a strong democracy requires strong citizens. So in that language, in the name of the organization, in even that mission statement, you know, this word citizen is, as you say, worth unpacking. And when I talk about citizen university or the idea of powerful citizenship, I'm not talking about documentation status under the immigration or naturalization laws of the country. I mean a broader ethical sense of being a member of the body, a pro-social contributor to community. And as I think we all know, there are plenty of people in this country who uh, lack the papers, 
but live like big citizens in this ethical sense. And there are plenty more, frankly, who have the papers, but don't. And so our emphasis in our work is on this broader ethical conception. And while it is true, as you say, that the politics of immigration um, have made the word citizen loaded in a certain way, and while this current administration has in some ways weaponized the status of United States citizenship through their policy agenda, the fact is that you know it is incumbent upon all of us to retain and to reclaim this word and the meaning of this word in the broadest ethical sense, which is a member of the body, someone who shows up, serves, contributes, participates, engages, and feels a sense of ownership and responsibility for the health of the body. Mm-hmm. That's how we think about it. And, and civic engagement in that sense, uh, which is not really a term that we use so much at Citizen University, we really think about something that I'll define in a moment. But civic engagement, I think, is just you know what one way of describing what it means to show up uh, when you are a member of the body. And the way that we at Citizen University conceptualize citizenship is often in terms of this very simple mock equation that I use, which is power plus character equals citizenship. I sometimes even make it a shorthand mock mathematical thing, P plus CH equals CI. And just as a shorthand way for people to remember the way to envision this meaning of citizenship, which means to be a citizen in the fullest sense is simultaneously to be on the one hand, literate in power, to understand how power works, what power is, how it flows, who has it, who does not have it, why that is, how it can be changed, how to practice it. And on the other hand, at the same time, to be grounded in character, to have a a moral ethical framework and to be steeped in the habits and the norms of uh, all the work that you all do around social emotional learning and emotional intelligence and and a sense of understanding uh, what it means to behave in pro-social ways. Yeah. To have one or the other alone is not sufficient mm-hmm. for full-body citizenship. Deep literacy and power without any grounding in character is just another way of saying sociopathy. <laughs> yeah. And deep grounding in character without any earthly idea about how to get stuff done or move things in the world is mere you know, solipsistic philosophizing. And so it's that combo of P plus CH mm-hmm. uh, that makes for citizenship in the way that we're defining it. I like that term literate in power. Mm-hmm. That's a, a good shorthand for a concept that I sometimes struggle with. I think a lot of people in general, and I think a lot of educators in particular, sometimes come with an initial reflex of aversion to the word power, to the idea of power. The very word connotes a whole bunch of dirty, sordid things, and all of our associations with it are inherently negative. Power trip, power hungry, power mad. The consequence of that general aversion is, of course, that when people decide that, oh, I don't want to kind of go there, that's dirty stuff, that's politics, that's people being bad to each other. What that does is, of course, it seeds the field to those who have no qualms about mastering power and understanding this currency. And I think we all have an obligation. I often liken it to the same obligation we might have, humans have had, to master fire. Power, like fire or like physics, is not inherently good or evil. It just is. It is just a capacity. You know, I define power as a capacity to ensure that others do as you would like them to do. And though that sounds kind of menacing and kind of Game of Thrones or, you know, (laughs) evil, again, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be candid in an SEL kind of way. Humans are always trying to get other humans to do what you would like them to do. And whether that objective that you're trying to move other people toward is sociopathic and selfish or pro-social and collectively minded? That's an empirical question. 
But we are obligated as members of the body to actually understand and be literate in the capacity itself, both so that we know how to use it for good, but also so that we can deter and contain those who would use it for ill. I love how you've drawn in the work that we do, the social emotional learning into this. And I'd love to just dig a little bit deeper into that. Absolutely. You know, I think when we talk about character in our civic context, uh, I want to make a distinction. We're not talking only or even primarily about what you might think of as individual personal virtue. Mm -hmm. The common conversation about character often gravitates around personal virtues like diligence or perseverance or, mm -hmm. you know, of course, the most popular one these days, grit. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm all for grit. I'm for perseverance and diligence and honesty. But what we mean and what we're emphasizing is what you might think of as character in the collective, how we behave together, how we live in public, how we hold together a community. And this gets to a set of values and predispositions like some of the ones uh, that you just named. But, uh, you know, I think of it in terms of mutuality and reciprocity. I think of it in terms of service to others, contribution before consumption, empathy and compassion, a recognition that true self-interest is mutual interest, that when we look out for each other, we thrive together, or as we often put it, we're all better off when we're all better off. Mm -hmm. And that is not mere altruism, right? I think kindness itself can sometimes get patted on the head and dismissed as, oh, you're so nice. You yeah. know, you're focusing on kindness. Why don't you all sit over here in the nice people's corner um, <laughs> when you're talking about kindness? And, yeah. and I think all of us, uh, again, in this conversation, but every person who's taken the time to listen to this podcast is doing so because they get on some deep level that kindness is not just about niceness. Kindness is a strategy for thriving. Kindness is a strategy for a group, a society, a community, a country to actually be all that it can be and thrive to the maximum extent. And so the kind of practical case for prosociality, the practical case for compassion, it goes beyond mere self-sacrificing altruism. It recognizes that in the long run, societies that build habits of mutuality, reciprocity, service to others, deferral of gratification, serving others before you serve yourself, are the societies that are more resilient, more adaptive, and more durable. And that's true at every fractal scale of human gathering, from family to company to city to corporation. You know, bridge that gap between anti-bullying work and broader work of, you know, constructive participation in community. All of us have to think about how we teach this stuff and how we model it, uh, again, at every fractal scale. Hmm. I was mentioning to Mia earlier how your approach, the way you design some of the initiatives that you have around, you know, civic engagement and citizenships. It's it's so mm -hmm. very active, but active at these different levels, like the interpersonal one-on-one -on -one communication, the small group or hyper-local piece, just kind of moving up to state to national to international conversations. And and it's an area where I think people feel ill-informed, not literate in, in the power mm -hmm. structure. They feel sometimes actively disengaged because they don't feel heard or like they're able to have those connections sometimes with their closest family members. But there's this piece of, you know, social emotional learning. When we talk about empathy and perspective taking. It's really necessary to engage in that, to have good engagement at all of those levels and understanding empathy and then being active related to your empathy are different things. I just want to add on to that too, you know, just following up because Andrew and I were talking about this earlier too, because, you know, truly having empathy means that you not only understand, but feel what other people are feeling. And that mm. is hard. 
and that is uncomfortable mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And so it's always that question of, you know, how do we, you know, get people past that discomfort and into the meaningful dialogue? Yeah, there's sort of the headiness of it and the complexity of the the systems that are in place that you're trying to work in. And there's also the sort of emotionally draining part of trying to really engage deeply with someone and understand what they're feeling and feel it yourself. Those things, I think, create a lot of barriers for people. Yeah. I love this set of reflections and the question that's uh, contained in them because, you know, you've named something very real, which is that even for people like us who know about this stuff, care about this stuff, are motivated on some level to want to apply what we know about either civic empowerment or social emotional learning, we will run up against this obstacle, this often internal obstacle of, I don't know where to begin, mm-hmm. or I have a sense of where to begin, but I'm scared of the risks of mm-hmm. uh, of beginning, whether they're interpersonal risks or reputational risks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really glad you frame it this way. And what I would say in response, what we've learned in our program work at Citizen University is that what fundamentally matters most to get out of the headiness of this is to invite people into ritual gatherings and spaces um, where they can practice this. This is truly a matter of practice in the way that that any profession like law or social work or medicine might be practiced, but it's also practice in the sense that a faith tradition is practice. It's not a one and done. It's not I read it and I thought about it and now it's in me. You know, th- these notions only get embodied and kind of revivified by the choices we make in practice. And one of the rituals and programs that we've designed at Citizen University is called Civic Saturday. And Civic Saturday is a gathering that is essentially a civic analog to a faith gathering. It's not church, it's not synagogue or mosque, but it has the arc of a faith gathering. And it focuses, instead of on godly religion, it focuses on what you might think of as civic religion, as our creed. It focuses on our creed as Americans, the values and ideals that we profess to believe in and that you know we still fail to actually live up to fully. And it follows the arc of a faith gathering on purpose because we feel like there is something powerful, timeless about the ways in which these collective rituals both invite and enable people to make meaning together, to go places where they are otherwise a little bit more scared of going, you know, whether on social media or face-to-face these days. So when you come to a Civic Saturday, you will be welcomed and greeted by strangers. You will sit down next to people you don't know. You'll then be asked to pair up with people you don't know and reflect on a prompt that goes deeper than most usual chit-chat. It goes deeper, frankly, than even most Thanksgiving dinners go to. You'll talk about a question like, who are you responsible for? Or how have you failed to help a neighbor? Or something like that, that just kind of arrests you and takes you out of your daily flow. Um, And after you do that, um, there are then, you know, we sing together and we don't sing church hymns. We sing American anthems of different kinds, sometimes uh, traditional ones, sometimes protest songs, sometimes, uh, you know, things you never heard of. And then there are readings of what you might think of as civic scripture, uh, great texts, from the American tradition, again, sometimes well-known, sometimes quite insurrectionist and not as well-known, but uh, provocative all the same. There's a civic sermon that follows to help people try to connect the dots between the moral challenges of participating in civic life these days, of just paying attention to the news and how exhausting uh, that can be as a parent, as a teacher, as a citizen, as a neighbor, as someone who's scared or disfavored um, in today's political environment how you connect the dots between those moral challenges and the simple choices that we make. And we've created this gathering called Civic Saturday because people are hungry for this kind of opportunity to make meaning together. 
And when they do that, when they come to these spaces, and then you know, after these sermons, people form up civic circles where they can, in, in groups of four or five or six, talk about the deeper challenges that they're facing, again, in every part of their lives with a level of emotional candor and introspection that they certainly wouldn't have contemplated uh, you know, 90 minutes prior when they walked into the room. And we believe fundamentally that gatherings like this make a huge difference. They help us build muscle that has been atrophied which is not just an SEL muscle, but it is a, you know, what Tocqueville called habits of the heart Mm -hmm. that are foundational to democracy. When I talk about civic religion, you know, I mean it in this more than metaphorical sense that democracy is one of the most faith-fueled human activities there is, right? Democracy works only if enough of us believe that democracy works. And that requires us not reading about it, not thinking about it. It requires us being in a room with strangers and realizing, hey, we can kind of get to know each other here, not even necessarily agree, not necessarily like each other at the end of this, but realize that we will figure out a way to navigate these interactions together and to humanize each other and to begin to take steps toward empathy. Civic Saturdays have been so popular that we actually created uh, last year a civic seminary uh, to start training people from towns all over the country to lead their own Civic Saturdays. And then the next outgrowth of that that is squarely in, in your all's wheelhouse uh, at Committee for Children is uh, next year we are going to roll out a civic confirmation program that, uh, you know, you extend the metaphor. It will be circles of young people guided by elders to reflect on the moral and ethical content of what it means to live like a citizen and following, you know, an arc of mutual learning that culminates in a rite of passage. I've been to one of the Civic Saturdays in Seattle I'm generally not here on weekends, but one time I was and I went and it was fantastic. And I am betting that some of our listeners are really curious about learning more about it. They may or may not have one in their community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they hear you talk about it more or read more about it in some of the other places where you've published about Civic Saturday, how would someone, if they wanted to start one in their own community, how would they do that? Yeah. So we have this Civic Saturday fellowship program, which begins with a four-day civic seminary training that we bring folks to Seattle, uh, which is our headquarters. And then after that four-day training, we send them back out to their communities and support them over the next nine months. But uh, if you go to our website, citizenuniversity.us, you can sign up for the interest list. Uh, We will later in the spring be taking applications for two cohorts in the fall, and we'll be training more folks to come do this. This is just one of the programs that we have at Citizen University. You know, one, Mia, that you mentioned at the very outset mm-hmm. of this podcast conversation is called the Civic Collaboratory. And the Collaboratory is a, as you put it, a mutual aid club of civic innovators drawn from all over the country, but also from all different silos and sectors of civic work, ranging from education, civic education or SEL work, to civic tech, to veterans work, to immigrant rights mm-hmm. work, to democracy reform, voting reform. And what connects all of these people in these disparate domains is a shared interest in actually to use the word, Andrea, that you used a moment ago, activating bottom-up citizen power and activating that sense of wanting to cultivate uh, civic character. And folks come from not only across the country, but to a certain extent across the ideological spectrum. We've got people in the civic collaboratory who are leading libertarians, who were early founders of the Tea Party, who are now reformed conservatives in different ways. Um, as well as people who are, you know, Black Lives Matter leaders and Fight for 15 leaders and dreamers and so forth. And again, you get these strange bedfellows, these unlikely alliances and collaborations that evolve because there's a catchword that we use, a catchphrase at the collaboratory. And Mia, you've heard me use this before, but it's quite, again, in the SEL and and CFC wheelhouse. And that is bonds of trust and affection. Mm -hmm. All we're trying to do 
at the collaboratory is cultivate bonds of trust and affection. That's why it's not just a networking meeting and it's not just a set of presentations. At the heart of what we do every time we meet is this format that we call the Rotating Credit Club, where members take turns presenting to the rest of the group projects they're working on, initiatives that they're trying to launch. And the rest of the group has to offer not critique or commentary, but actually hard commitments of help, investments of all the kinds of capital that I was enumerating before, intellectual capital, relationship capital, institutional capital. And why would you offer to help somebody you might have just met at that meeting? Because in the best possible sense, what goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be in rotation next month or next quarter, and you want the same kind of reciprocal feeling of mutual investment. And that format has really unlocked something rather powerful and stitched together this web of practitioners from around the country. And so what we've been doing this year, the Civic Collaboratory has been a national gathering over the last seven years. In the last calendar year, we've partnered with the Chicago Community Trust to, for the first time, pilot a place-based local version of the collaboratory. And what we've learned from that pilot, frankly, is that it works even better when it's place-based because, you know, for reasons that you can guess, because when you all live in the same town or the same community, you're going to bump into each other and you're going to make good on your commitments because you keep on seeing each other and you keep on engaging each other. And so in the next year, we're going to be expanding opportunities for people to practice this format and create their own mutual aid clubs at the local level. And so I invite uh, your listeners also just to check that out. You know, and for any of our listeners who are interested just in the power work that I was describing too, our website is just chock full of resources that we've either created ourselves or created with partners like Ted Ed or Facing History and Ourselves, other great nonprofit organizations, some of which are animated videos, some of which are TV shows, some of which are curricula that we are developing for young people on power. And I'll just put in a personal plug, you know, I love this idea, Eric, of the local collaboratories. You know, not only has being a part of that been an incredible professional experience for me, but, you know, you make lasting lifelong friends there. It's a really tremendous thing to be a part of personally, but also, you know, feeling like you're certainly amplifying your own work by being in relationship with all these other people who are doing like-minded work. I just want to kind of get back to, as we're talking about this, I want to be in the mindset of one of your listeners, someone who is working, especially with young people around not only cultivating kindness and growing kinder, but more broadly on social emotional learning. And some of what I'm describing here in terms of our program, I want to emphasize almost everything we do is cross-generational. Some of the programs are specifically for young people. We have a youth collaboratory in which that same collaboratory format is applied to a group of High school students who are selected from across the United States every year as a cohort who spend time together as a cohort over the year. But we also, you know, things like Civic Saturdays are by design meant to invite people ranging from toddlerhood to senior citizenhood. Mm -hmm. And that too is something that has gone missing in American life. And I think for us doing this work here, it's not just that we who are kind of a bit older have wisdom to impart to young people and so forth, but that we've got to create more and more opportunities for the young people themselves to teach their elders, for the young people themselves to be showing how much they're doing to activate citizen power right now, how much they're doing to create new narratives and new habits of civic character. Young people today, whether it's a Sunrise Movement or March for Our Lives or other young people, they are actually leading the way. And what we've got to do you know, in trying to create cultures of social emotional learning is get out of the way and empower them more often 
to lead their elders. The theme across this, of course, is community and kind of convening and having these different viewpoints and conversations. And something that you said earlier really struck me. You were talking about the kind of conversations that might happen on Civic Saturday and that they might be more intense or reflective than those that happen at Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) And I always think that these inflection points of holidays or election times, they create you know, discord in families or in relationships because people feel more compelled to have deeper conversations about some of the things they're struggling with that seem differences in values or opinions or political stances. Now that some of these times are upon us, you have a project called Better Arguments Project. And Mm -hmm. I would just love to hear more about that and what your perspective is on navigating some of these conversations that come up at these inflection points in our year. I'm so glad you asked that because I think it's, you know, of course, the holiday season, you know, forces these occasions upon us and heightens the stakes in a way. But, you know, over the last few years, especially as our country's become more and more ideologically polarized and divided, it's become sort of a meme and a cliche to say, oh, Thanksgiving, oh, you know, Christmas time or, you know, Hanukkah or the holidays, watch out. These are times where you're going to have to navigate the minefields of you don't want to ask Uncle Bob what he thinks about impeachment or whatever it is. And that's true. But frankly, when we overfocus on this particular time period, we forget again that this is a matter of daily practice, 364 other days of the year, <laughs> right? And what I would say that pertains both to the holiday season and to you know any other day of the year does connect in part to this project that uh, we've developed called the Better Arguments Project. This is a joint venture of a program that I run out of the Aspen Institute, which is a think tank based in D.C., along with Facing History in Ourselves, which I mentioned earlier, a great moral education and choice-making program for high school students around the United States, and the Allstate Corporation, which uh, some of you know has been really trying to stand up as a company that asks, what is the civic and social role of a publicly held corporation? And the Better Arguments Project, we created out of a very simple premise, which is that as divided and hot and polarized as American political life is today, My view actually is not that we need fewer arguments in American civic life. We actually just need less stupid arguments. Uh, And what I mean by that to be somewhat more serious is arguments that are more grounded in history. And that means recognizing that almost every fight we have in American politics is a variation on a theme. There are about five or six core American fights and tensions that are built into the design of our country, that the point of America is to have these fights. America is an argument perpetually between liberty and equality, between a Jefferson view of local control and a Hamilton view of strong central government, between diversity represented in the pluribus side of our national motto and unity in the unum side of our national motto, right? These are tensions that are unresolvable that, you know, God help us if one side or another ever actually resolves the tension between liberty and equality, right? We always have to be fighting them out and they fight and they play out today on immigration, on the Affordable Care Act, on taxes, on the power of the presidency. A generation ago, they played out on Medicare and Vietnam and the civil rights movement. A generation before that, they played out on how, whether the New Deal was dictatorial on, you know, what the role of government should be, uh, you know, in a time of economic global crisis. And before that, they played out in, you know, the role of the government in the Civil War and slavery, right? We're always having these fights. So a better argument is historically literate. But the second thing that a better argument is, and this is, again, squarely in our wheelhouse, is more emotionally intelligent. That a better argument is one in which people come in at a minimum knowing what buttons they have they get pushed and knowing what patterns they fall into and knowing that it's incumbent upon them that only they 
can break the cycle of accuse to excuse. I'm going to attack you to let myself off the hook. That dynamic that plays out in every argument that we get into. And then third of all, a better argument is one that is more honest about power differentials and about the ways in which you know, an argument, for instance, about Confederate monuments or an argument about worker power and organizing is not an argument that is unfolding on equal terms. It's an argument that unfolds in a context of history mm-hmm. and in a context of current inequality that you got to be real about before you even get into it. And one of the things that we've developed over the course of this Better Arguments project by traveling around the country, convening, listening to educators, to young people, to active neighbors and nonprofit leaders, we've come up with a few principles of what makes a better argument. And you know, I'm not going to list all of them, but the first one I think is maybe the most important and the most practical one, especially for you know a holiday dinner conversation. And that is take winning off the table. If you enter into an argument um, with the objective not of winning, but simply of understanding, that completely changes the dynamic. And if you go in saying, look, I'm not even going to try to win, and that's not my goal. I truly want to understand, well, why is it that you see the world this way? And I think the corollary to that, the second practical piece of advice that I would give is don't dive into the hot button issues. Don't simply ask, why is it that you think that you know X or Y on immigration or taxes or whatever it might be? I think the far more humanizing way to get into this, and again, taking a cue from what we do at Civic Saturday, is ask, what is the origin of your worldview? How is it that you came to have these values? What formative experiences, what mentors or tormentors shape the way that you see the world? Why is it that you're so fixated on justice and inclusion? Or why is it that you're so fixated on order and authority? Why is it that you're so fixated sanctity of tradition? Why is it that you're so fixated on let everyone be the way they want to be, right? And that's a question to be asked without judgment. It's to be asked with curiosity. I want to understand how is it that you came to see the world this way, right? When you do that, you get to values that are deeper. You get to something that is universal and human. Even if you don't share that person's disposition, everybody has an origin story and everybody wants to be asked to unpack how it is that they came to see the world. When you asked me the first question in this conversation, I didn't go to the practical answer of, well, I was working in this job and then I came to do this thing. Mm-hmm. I spoke about how I, you know I'm the child of immigrants and that forms everything for me and my sense of responsibility and and belonging. And I think if we do that at the dinner table, we open up the possibility of better arguments. And I think the frame here, again, it's not just dialogue. It's not just discussion. Don't be afraid of argument. Argument is central to democracy. Argument is central to citizenship. It's central to knowing your own mind and making sure that you're not just rehearsing the talking points you just saw on TV, the very thing that you accuse the other person of doing, right? You know your own heart. When you're in a pure bad argument, There's a little voice in your conscience. There's some twinge in your heart that knows, eh, that person's got a point there. Or, ah, there's a hole in my argument. But you cannot, in that heat of argument, let that weakness show. And part of what we've got to do in having better arguments is let that weakness show. (laughs) You know, model what it looks like to be vulnerable in there. And I think even like monitoring your tone, right? Because you can imagine a way in which like, how did you come to that worldview? You, know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can only imagine no, how that could go badly real quickly. Yeah. We were talking earlier about, you know, some some preconceived notions about different areas of the country or how people live or what their views might be. And I'm from Kentucky originally, and I got a lot of warnings about moving to the West Coast and 
the sort of concept of a coastal bubble or coastal elites and mm-hmm. and the craziness of the kind of liberal agenda in the West Coast. And there's some deeply held across the spectrum, deeply held beliefs about people in certain areas or with certain viewpoints. And I think that having a one-to-one conversation with someone where you're vulnerable and you really seek to understand sounds like one of the only ways to start to break that down. And a lot of people won't have that opportunity, right? To have an experience of someone outside of their own context or bubble. Well, I think that is true. Although the other thing I would suggest for all of us, and again, educators get to do this more because their students, the young people that they're working with are a real shuffle of class and race and religion and community. But for those of us just moving in our own professional circles, you're absolutely right. We can fall into bubbles of one kind or another, one side or another. You know, the one thing I would say, though, is that even within your bubble, there's less unanimity than it first appears. And I don't mean just politically, right? Here in Seattle, where we are based, sure, you can say Seattle is this stereotypically blue, progressive, hyper-liberal place that literally has a socialist member of its city council and so forth. And yet- when it comes to issues that are very hot and contentious right now of homelessness and how to deal with homelessness, for instance, you have a lot of reactions in this so-called progressive town that are not progressive. And I don't mean to demonize those reactions. They are reactionary reactions. They are reactions of wanting to protect oneself, reactions of scarcity, reactions of fear. And those are natural human responses to, to a sense of disorder. And yet, even in progressive enlightened Seattle, it seems that people can't have a productive, healthy conversation about the reasons why people might have a variety of responses to homelessness and to the crisis of homelessness. And instead, there is a cycle of demonization that unfolds even on this topic. And it's not necessarily a Republican-Democrat demonization, but it is a, you're either a caring person or you're not a caring Mm -hmm, person kind of thing. And that's not helpful to actually solving the problem, right? And so I think you're right that people have stereotypes about geography or, you know, urban-rural divides. And those, you know, we're trying, a lot of our civic seminarians come from rural communities and they are doing the work or they come from smaller cities where the people living in those cities aren't just dark blue progressives. Uh, They are doing the work of invitation and bridge building into these settings. But I would say even if you live in a, what seems like a very homogenous community, probe a little deeper and you will find that people have very different moral explanations for what's going on and moral reactions to what's going on. And we who are equipped with a certain sense of skill and capacity around social emotional learning, again, have continued obligation in even the seemingly homogenous places to practice what we know. You can recognize that sometimes people are responding out of fear or out of scarcity and wanting to protect oneself or one's family. And you're right, it tends to get demonized, but in fact, it is a normal response. And I think that it is important to remember to try and check yourself and your judgments when you are, you know, discussing issues with people. I think, you know, you kind of have to start from a place of understanding your own values. Can you talk a little bit more about why you think that that is really important and the part it plays in better arguments? Well, I think it plays the central part, not only in better arguments, I think it plays a central part in just our capacity to govern ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I actually use that term Again, in a fractal way, at at the scale, of course, of a society, a democratic society, we're always trying to figure out how can we govern ourselves effectively and not let the game get rigged, not let things get lopsided, not let a few people monopolize voice, power, opportunity. But I think to govern oneself actually begins with literally to govern yourself. 
<laughs> yeah. to gain a certain amount of command over your own habits and dispositions and to know oneself emotionally, psychologically, and values-wise. And so one thing we do at our civic seminary training that's always a surprisingly moving part of the training is we invite the people there actually just to sit down and write out, we give them you know, 20, 30 minutes on a blank piece of paper, write down your core beliefs. What are your core beliefs? Again, a question that most of us, most of the time, aren't asked or invited to do. Mm -hmm. And they do that and they sit there and they reflect and they write those down. And then we ask them to shuffle them and give their paper to someone else and ask someone else to read that other person's you know, articulation of their core beliefs and core values and read them silently and then really try to inhabit them. Really try to imagine what it would be like to hold these as your priorities. And for some people who hold tradition and belonging and place as sacrosanct, whereas others, you know, value most personal freedom and individual liberty sacrosanct, and others hold something else sacrosanct, others will really gravitate towards something that is very much about faith and God, and others will go to something that is much more about uh, ideas and people. When you do that, it's this two-part work of excavating our values. In the first place, just asking yourself, what do I believe and why? I mean, I truly, I, I literally, as soon as people finish listening to this podcast, go find a mm. blank piece of paper and write down, what do you believe and why? Mm. What are the ways you would articulate your code of civic character, your code of values that you try to live by or that you profess to live by? But the second part of that then is do that with some others. Invite some other folks into this work and then exchange your sheets of paper and talk mm -hmm. about what it is and why it is. That's what we do. But there are other organizations, one that I would point you to, a project called Ben Franklin Circles mm -hmm. that does this work. Benjamin Franklin, as some of you may know, in his autobiography described how starting as a young man, he kept a little notebook in which he listed 13 virtues. And every day he would mark whether he had lived up to those 13 virtues. And they were virtues that were included. Some of the individual virtues I described earlier, like perseverance and diligence, uh, industry, and others that are more social virtues, like uh, you know I was also describing, like justice, temperance, uh, tolerance, and so forth. And what Ben Franklin Circles are is a format where people invite a group of friends to meet once a month for 13 months. And each month, you discuss one of those virtues. But you don't just discuss them. Each month you go into the month committing to be mindful of how you live out that particular virtue. And Ben Franklin Circles, which is a project that uh, we at Citizen University helped to stand up uh, along with the folks at the 92nd Street Y in New York uh, and the Hoover Institution at Stanford, has now become this national phenomenon. And, you know, again, I'm throwing out these ideas, whether it's what we do at Civic Seminary or what Ben Franklin Circles do. I just encourage you, like, take the germ of this and adapt it to however it works for you. But the idea is fundamentally to ask yourself in what may seem like a contrived way, has to be a contrived way, and then ask others, what do you believe and why? And that exercise will open up new channels, not only of self-reflection, but I think of the kind of civic bonding and cultivation of habits of the heart that make democracy work. Thank you. I wanted to just kind of close us here with a question that we typically ask all of our guests, and that is about a person who has made an impact on your life or that you sort of hold up as an example of what you're trying to work toward as you do the work that you're doing around citizenship and engagements. Is there someone that 
you sort of, whether in the vein of like kindness or character, who has made a real difference for you? Hmm. Boy, that's uh, we could do a whole hour just on that. I've never had a single capital mentor who I point to and say, that person shaped me more than anybody else. I've always had kind of a composite that is a fluid, ever-changing composite of people who I encounter and they loom larger at some point in my life and then later might recede. And right now, someone who has loomed large over the last few years is a guy named C. Terry Warner. Terry is a retired professor emeritus of philosophy at BYU, Provo, Utah. And I first came to him, not in person, but through a book he wrote called Bonds That Make Us Free. And I read that book and I absorbed that book and learned to practice the ideas in this book. Uh, and only years later did I meet him and his wife, Susan, and, and we have struck up this really deep and moving mentorship friendship that he has been gracious enough to treat as kind of a two-way mutual mentorship, even though he's many decades my senior. And the core essence of both his book, Bonds That Make Us Free, and his work is this idea that there's a central dynamic in all human interaction, which I alluded to earlier, which he shorthands as accused to excuse, a dynamic of self-justification, which I will accuse you to excuse me. And that happens at the interaction level of you and a loved one coming home from a long day at work. And one person says, hey, why didn't you take out the trash? And the other person automatically responds with, well, why didn't you do the dishes? right? No one takes responsibility. It's accused to excuse. And that plays out on Twitter and social media, on politics. It plays out in Middle East peace talks. It plays out at every scale of human interaction, accused to excuse. And what Terry Warner talked about in this book is there's only one way to break that cycle. And that is to break that cycle, to be the one who takes responsibility for saying, all right, I may not have started this, but I am going to try to end this. I will own my piece of the problem and see if it's possible by example to set in motion a different cycle in which you see that and you think, okay, well, then I will own my piece. Terry Warner has shaped me so much in trying to be a better person, a better husband, a better father, a better citizen, a better boss, a better neighbor. But he's also you know, influenced the way that I weave that ethic into the work that we do at Citizen University. And he doesn't use the term, I don't think, social emotional learning, but almost everything he's doing is 100% SEL, 100% CFC approved kind of <laughs> ideas. Uh, and I think, you know, he's been a great, great teacher and influence to me. Thank you for sharing that, Eric. That was so nice. So Eric, as we're wrapping up today, this has just been a very inspiring and also very useful, like really great resources for people, conversation. And I would love for you to one more time, tell people where they can find out more information and also mentioning, we didn't actually mention your book, Become America, but that's also a resource, right? For people to get more information or to read some civic sermons that you've put together. Could you say just a little bit more about that? You bet. For more information, just our website, citizenuniversity.us. We'll be at one-stop shopping for uh, <laughs> all the work and programs that I've described here, Civic Saturdays, Civic Seminary, and others. And this book that you just mentioned, Mia, is called Become America. And it collects the sermons that I wrote and delivered for the first 19 Civic Saturdays um, that we held all around the United States. Eric Liu, thank you so much for joining us today. This is, has been a wonderful yes, conversation. Thank you. thank you both so much. And thanks for the work that you all are doing and uh, Committee for Children in helping to lead and catalyze this great change in our society and the social movement around social emotional learning. I'm proud to be just connected to it, even if lightly. Fantastic. Thanks. Bye, Eric. 
Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Eric Liu, co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Stitcher.